The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. And welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Babs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic, and you don't have to sound so sad about it. I and, know. I just feel like such we, a poser. We do talk about Star Wars uh, quite a bit on the show. <laughs> Actually, yeah, um, it's a bit of a misleading uh, uh, intro, but it sounds good. Uh, if you're new, the premise of the show is uh, we're not talking about. What happens so much in Star Wars movies is we are talking about the many films that inspired Star Wars. George Lucas's original Star Wars was a pastiche of the many films that influenced him, uh, which ranged from broad sci-fi fantasy to samurai films to serious dramas to uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, experimental art films and the like. Uh, and all of the uh, Star Wars films that followed, yeah, they all had their influences uh, in the wide, wide world of cinema. So much so that we could do an entire podcast dedicated to nothing but the films that inspired Star Wars and use Star Wars as an excuse to really dig into the meat of film history. And we'd be able to talk about uh, famous classics, obscure oddities, uh, sometimes just actual crap. Uh, my favorite episode so far was still uh, 2187, mm-hmm. which was an experimental art short, which kind of unlocked Star Wars for me in a big way. Yeah, all of a sudden Star Wars went from being like this fun sort of action adventure thing, and you started to realize that deep down there is a philosophy to it, and mm-hmm. indeed to all of George Lucas's work. And once you really start picking apart this one weird experimental short film that just edits random footage together underneath a variety of audio clips... Yeah, all of a sudden, like, yeah, Star Wars means a lot more than people, I think, give it credit for a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, although, uh, as the years have gone on, Star Wars is, of course, eaten its own tail. A lot of mm-hmm. critics greater than us have written uh, at, at length about the influence of Star Wars and the influence that Star Wars had on Star Wars itself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but uh, when you go right back to it, Star Wars is part of the grand tradition of cinematic storytelling, larger-than-life tales, many of which told against the broad backdrop, either the fantastical, the science-fictional, or, as is the case of the film we are discussing today, uh, the Western, which was a genre which dominated the multiplex for many, many decades and never went away. Some people are fond of saying that the genre died. Still alive, 
not as well as it used to be, but it's around. New Westerns come out every year. They get nominated for awards. They come out on television. It's still a big deal. And the template well, it's, it's of still, like... It's still a deal. I think, no, I think it's still a big deal because although the actual Western genre itself has faded... Uh, at least in popularity, its influence lives on. And indeed, the, sure. the types of stories that were told in the classic Hollywood Western, these uh, tales of the frontier, tales of uh, good and evil and moral decay, uh, of, uh, you know, well, people I, living on the fringe. Also, also, and also just bold heroism and villainy. Yeah. The, these are tales, these are cinematic tales that have had a lasting uh, uh, impression, not just on... Star Wars, but indeed the stuff that inspired Star Wars. We've already talked about several uh, Akira Kurosawa films, for example. Akira Kurosawa was heavily influenced by the director of the film we're talking about today, a filmmaker named John Ford, who directed like eight million movies. Well, he started his career as an actor back in the silent days. Uh, he started directing in, I think, his 20s. Yeah. And yeah, just directed film after film after film. Mm. Uh, I think he has well over 100 films in his filmography. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But he has directed some of the best-regarded motion pictures ever made, uh, including, but not limited to... Uh, well, let's see what we got here. Uh, we got... Uh, How Green Was My Valley? How Green Was My Valley, uh, The Informer, Young Mr. Lincoln, Stagecoach, uh, My Darling Clementine, Three Godfathers, Rio Grande, uh, The Quiet Man... Mr. Roberts. He's, he's often credited as the man who kind of made John Wayne into the legend that he was, because he worked with John Wayne so frequently. Yeah, John Wayne was a, was in a lot of movies, but when he started working with John Ford, mostly in Stagecoach, people were like, who the fuck is this John Wayne guy? And why isn't he a movie star? We should make him a movie star. And indeed, John Wayne made many of his best movies with John Ford, including the film that we're going to talk about today. This is, uh, movie is considered now... One of the greatest westerns ever made, and some people put it on lists of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, it is a film that was one of the first in a wave of revisionist westerns. Uh, I feel like a lot of these spaghetti westerns would go way further than this does in oh, trying sure. to uh, sort of repaint our picture of the Old West in darker tones. Uh, but uh, let's dig right in and talk about The Searchers. From the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. It's John Wayne as Ethan Edwards who had a rare kind of courage. The courage that simply keeps on and on far beyond all reasonable endurance, never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Okay, so The Searchers is an action-adventure western that deals with some really, really dark themes. John Wayne plays an ex-Confederate soldier uh, named Ethan. He comes back to see his family, who are living, I believe, in Arizona, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. And uh, shortly after he arrives, the family is attacked and mostly killed uh, by uh, Comanches. At which point, John Wayne and uh, the adopted child of this family, played by Jeffrey Hunter, who a lot of people know as the original Captain Pike on Star Trek, uh, head on out to rescue uh, the two daughters who were kidnapped 
by the Comanches in that raid. And specifically to get revenge. They're going to kill yep. the Comanches. Oh, yeah. It's a story about revenge. It is a story about hatred. It is a story about racism. and Spe- It's actually very specifically a story about white supremacy. Very, very much so. And although I think if you watch this movie today, you will find that it really doesn't address these issues to any contemporary satisfaction. Um, it did address it more than other films in the era. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not going to defend so much the film's politics because I actually think the politics are, are often kind of ugly and underexplored. At least it has some because a lot of the other stuff that, if, of that era, we recently talked about uh, um, Distant Drums, mm, which is a Western and spirit. Shocking, shockingly racist. Yeah, which is a Western in Florida, but yeah. Yeah, but it's definitely a Western in spirit and tone and story structure. Um, that movie is just blindingly racist. It is completely blind to how shockingly racist it is. Mm. The Searchers is at least aware of it. And I don't know if that's forgiving at all, if that's forgivable at all. It may be a hard watch now, but it is atypical of the era. It's, it's atypical of the era. It's actually way more complex than I recall. This was a film I saw, in, in like a lot of people, I saw it in college. I mm. saw it actually as an assignment. This was something we watched in film school. And uh, at the time, I hated it like mm. rather actively why i i thought that it was uh condoning every one of uh john wayne's actions mm. and send like holding him up as a hero through and through yeah and really sort of uh condoning every one of his completely racist actions yeah and i i figured that was something that the filmmakers were just oblivious to yeah completely and i felt that it didn't really have much of a deep uh, a theme, theme or tone or moral message. It was just a really simple but well-directed revenge story with no real point. That's the way I saw it when I was yeah. like twenty years old. How do you feel about it now? Uh, I, I kind of love it now. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to because interesting. What, a, a, You're not even a big fan of westerns. No, westerns aren't my genre. Uh, John John Wayne is not somebody I'm a too familiar with or b I'm very even fond of, not as an actor or as a person. Right. Uh, and this idea of uh, revenge stories set in the old West are just not interesting to me. It's not an interesting setting. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't find that per- the, the, the film iconography that sort of leaked into film traditions mm-hmm. to be pretty the, uninteresting. The arid, dusty yeah. plains. Like, the, yeah. okay, there's nothing there. It's like, yeah. it's really lawless. Yeah. So what? Nobody's there. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, and the idea that this is sort of the way we've, this is the world we've turned to to find sort of the typical American hero, unironically, has always, has never sat very well with me. Mm-hmm. And I saw The Searchers as being sort of the exemplar of all of these concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally. Originally. I've rewatched it and I've seen how, uh, I think I'm finally picking up at how disgusted John Ford is with John Wayne. Mm-hmm. It's his character with Ethan, that is. Yeah. Maybe with John Wayne as a person. I don't know. Well, John Wayne but, was notoriously quite racist, although yeah. there are many stories of him actually being a decent human being mm-hmm. to non-white people. You talk, you you read interviews with him, and he's he uses a, racial slurs he's and white really rhetoric. he's yeah. really kind of gross, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all there is to it. Like, there are stories on the set of The Searchers about how, like, one of uh, the First Nation people who was in the film, and they were mad. They were they were upset because they were missing their child's uh, wedding to be in this movie, and John Wayne had the entire production shut down so they could go. Okay. Like, that's that's a nice thing he did, but then you hear about the stuff that he actually thought and believed, and it's really gross. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was, he was, he even, was even in the 1950s, it was considered he su- a little hard. He supported the blacklist. Mm-hmm. Like, he was... 
really the politics i think a lot of us wouldn't agree with at all if not outright hate yeah uh, today yeah uh but yeah, so I saw, like, we have John Wayne, we have the Old West, we have these, like, heroism, and uh, the notion of revenge being a heroic act was something that I was picking up from um, from the original, my original watching of The Searchers, yeah. which is something I don't morally necessarily agree with. No, we've talked about uh, this yeah. a lot, about how revenge is something that exists a lot in our stories, but in reality, I think we all yeah, understand how horrible that yeah, is. People don't get blood revenge in real life, like, may yeah. maybe in, like, like if you're in the mob or something, but uh, right. yeah, in real life, this is not something that's really typical. At least it's not as common as it is in the movies. And I felt like the, it, that the film was celebrating it. And I feel like on this rewatch, I kind of saw, because uh, this might, might not have been something I picked up on, uh, but the revenge plot where John Wayne and Jeffrey Hunter are going out and onto, into the underbrush mm -hmm. to find Comanches and kill them takes a good number of years over five. the course of the searchers it takes five, five years years and over that time you begin to see kind of how horrendously sisyphusian it is mm -hmm. and you also begin to see how devoted ethan is not to a concept but to a violence mm -hmm. th this sort of uh using violence as this weird kind of personal sacrament for himself mm -hmm. and also how devote how he becomes really obsessed because of his own white supremacist leanings. Yeah. Uh, one of the elements of the searchers is uh, a young girl is kidnapped by the Comanches mm -hmm. and they catch up with them years later. And she's been living with the Comanches so long that she's become part of the tribe. Yeah. She's, she's not been, you know, in, indoctrinated or, uh, you know, brainwashed or tortured. She's just a member of the tribe now. Yeah. This is her life now. And yeah, and yeah she, she speaks their language. She dress, dresses in their dress. She sees them and she barely recognizes them. And when she sees them, she says, you got to get out of here. Yeah. This is, this is my world now. Yeah. And John Wayne in that moment says, we need to kill her. Yeah. He we just whips out a gun and says, and says she's not, she's, she's he, not. He even says, She's not white anymore. Yeah. He has that line of dialogue in this movie. And to the and and the other character who is one of the searchers, mm -hmm. the searchers refers to two people, first to John Wayne and refers to Jeffrey Hunter, who is like one eighth Native American. And so much, which is so much so that John Wayne, like the first time he sees him, mm -hmm. like he walks into a room and John Wayne looks at him and he's just like, Do I have to kill him? Yeah. Like, and they're, they're the initial second, we're like, holy shit, dude, also, what the fuck? Also, he's a Confederate soldier. So well, John Wayne, John not Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter. But jo yeah. Uh, yeah, the John Wayne character is a Confederate soldier. Yeah. So we get to see pretty much a, a, a pretty damning explosion yeah. of these kinds of Western heroes and what they actually stood for. So when John Wayne, so initially they go out with a group of guys to try to rescue uh, the two daughters uh, who were taken by the Comanches, one of whom is quickly killed. Uh, and there's a shootout and everything, and then everyone else just says, look, we tried, we, we gotta go. We either need, like, a whole army to do this, or we just need, like, a couple of scouts to try to find them. So, everyone else leaves, except for John Wayne, who, he just lost pretty much his whole family, the only people he ever cared about, and also he's mega racist, and now he has an excuse to kill Comanches. And Jeffrey Hunter goes with him as well, because that was Jeffrey Hunter's adopted family. And also, he knows that because if it takes long enough, that Lucy, uh, the young girl who will go on to be played by Natalie Wood, and initially she's played by Natalie Wood's younger sister, so good casting there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I it's Lana Wood. Look that up. Okay. Um, 
he knows that if she ends up being just becoming like part of that tribe, like if if John Wayne thinks she is too far gone because she's very very young when she's taken, she'll be raised by the Comanches if it takes long enough. That he knows that Ethan will kill her, mm. and he has to stay with Ethan. Not so much because he's, I mean, he wants to save her and stuff, but he's basically there to make sure that when they find her, this guy isn't so fucking racist he's just going to kill her. And that's the whole thing. There's, he has multiple opportunities over the course of this film to, to leave John Wayne, let him go on his obsessive search, and actually settle down with Vera Miles, who is wonderful in this movie, as a woman who has been holding a torch for this young guy since they were little kids. And he's Jeffrey Hunter, so you get it. He's, <laughs> he's handsome. handsome. He is. I've, I'm not that familiar with the works of Jeffrey Hunter. I remember him from Star Trek and a few other things. Not only is he super handsome, he gives one of the best performances in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, Jeffrey Hunter is exceptionally good in this movie. Like, like young James Dean good. Like, holy shit, this guy's going to be huge. It's weird that he wasn't really. Like, he had a good career, but he should have been huge based on his performance alone. Um, but yeah, he has this opportunity. Vera Miles is perfect. She's wonderful. She's funny. She gives as good as she gets in, like, you know, bantering conversations. She's well-educated. She really loves him. But She's, you know... this And the scene where... Uh, it's such such brilliant screenwriting, where uh, Vera Miles has to read Jeffrey Hunter's letter. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and she receives one letter in like the five years he's been gone, and he's such a he doesn't know how to read or write very well. Uh-huh. So it's really kind of stilted, and she's kind of staggering through it. Mm-hmm. She misspells her name, which she's yeah. just immediately offended by. <laughs> and so you get to see not only her giving exposition because we're actually catching up like a big span of time that we jumped forward, like yeah. it's been going on the last five years, and we kind of see flashbacks and flash forwards during the sequence. But she. So she has to perform the exposition, which is hard hard enough to make interesting. Yep. But we get to see her reaction to every horrible thing that he's done wrong. Yeah. And so she's furious at Jeffrey Hunter, whereas Jeffrey Hunter thought he was actually doing, like, the right thing in writing this letter and telling her all this stuff. It's really hilarious. So it's this he... really layered scene that, that's all on Vera Miles' shoulders. All of my, actually, my favorites, like, the most fun scenes to watch in this movie are all the stuff back at the homestead. Mm-hmm. And I think that's by design. I think John Ford wants to make the homes as homey and inviting as possible because that's where people are friends. Mm-hmm. And it's only out in the actual frontier in the plains where people seem to lose their humanity and become like f- taken over by their own inner demons. The first and last shots of this movie are incredibly famous because it opens with a look, uh, a look out a door. Well, like, yeah, we just, it's, and it's interesting because this is a, one of the better, like early widescreen movies that really started to take massive, like, uh, uh, it started to use the widescreen format, which really only came in in the early 50s, mm-hmm. uh, to its maximum potential. But John Ford, who had made a lot of films in Academy Ratio for many, many decades, well, many, like three, uh, here he's playing with it right off the bat. And we just see outside, it's pitch black inside because of the contrast between light and dark. We see looking outside a door, and we mm-hmm. see a bit of desert. And as a woman walks outside the walks out the door, the camera follows her, and it becomes this gorgeous widescreen shot. And it's her going out into this great big world, and into her life comes Ethan. And whether it's just through the machinations of plot, or whether it's some sort of uh, reckoning that is owed Ethan and the people who care about him because of all the atrocities Ethan has committed, mm. uh, but he brings hell with him. The end of the movie. 
when everything has not turned out okay, but ended as satisfactorily as the plot will allow, he brings Lucy back. These spoilers. We've already established. We talked about spoilers here. He's bringing Lucy back. And they take her inside, and the camera comes inside the house, and John Wayne doesn't come in because there's no place for him there. Mm-hmm. He's tainted. He, he's, he exists out there. He cannot find like a place yeah. anywhere else. And there's a sadness to that, but there's also a justice to that because he's done so many horrible things over the course of this film, and the implication is beforehand that this mm-hmm. is what he gets. Yeah. But there's also like this really wonderful scene where Jeffrey Hunter had a really nice scene with a couple of scenes with Vera Miles and he has to go and off with Ethan to save Lucy because Ethan will kill her. Uh, he writes her one letter and then like four years later he comes back and the day they come back is the day that she finally had given up on him and was having a wedding. And she's in her wedding dress. Yeah. And she's just like, you, (laughs) are you fucking kidding me with this? And he gets in a big fight with her groom and everything. And they're biting each other. Like, kids because they're they're, just immature men and um it's so great it's it's, it's actually a really important scene this this scene where they're fighting because jeffrey hunter has essentially gotten a taste of violence yeah and you can see the bad influence that john wayne has had on him yeah you could you could argue that jeffrey hunter wouldn't have gotten in that fight had he not met john wayne probably true yeah i think uh, I, I, I looked up a little bit on this, and it's hard for me to say what John Ford intended. I think yes. John Ford was actually like maybe a little bit more like John Wayne. I, I'm not exactly sure though. I'm mm-hmm. not a John Ford scholar by any stretch. Yeah, it's hard to say what his actual beliefs yeah. are. Maybe some other, some other people who are listening know more than we do. In which yeah, case, so we'd love to hear may, from maybe you. Maybe but... he actually has a deep sympathy for the John Wayne character for Ethan. But I, I get from the film in 2020. A, a deep criticism of what's going on, especially given light of the history that followed the events of this film, mm-hmm. how uh, people like John Wayne were the ones who were essentially holding the philosophy that justified a genocide of a people. Yeah. And I don't think John Ford was trying to sympathize or justify that. No. Or maybe he was. I don't there know. have been some interpretation, and that maybe that's what I was taking from, from the film when I was in my twenties. Again, I do think that there is a simplistic surface interpretation of this film, which Mm -hmm. is basically just the Comanches did something terrible. And then they go off on a long series of revenge and they kill a bunch of Comanches Mm -hmm. and then they come back victorious. Mm -hmm. There's totally that surface level. Look at the film and whether or not the, the people involved actually had beliefs that back this up or not, the text of the film supports, I think, a deeper reading than that. When you look at the implied histories mm-hmm. of everyone involved and also what we see on John Wayne and Jeffrey Hunter's uh, uh, journey, mm-hmm. that sort of shows that this is a cycle of violence. Yeah. yeah. Like, we know that John Wayne was a Confederate soldier. He was fighting to keep oppressing people. And, and he believes not in that not in the cause of like the Confederacy or states rights or any of that. Yeah. Because he ends up joining the union army later in the movie just so he can continue oppression, oppression. Yeah. So he can get his revenge and kill Comanches. Yeah. And we see just how like almost obscenely cruel John Wayne can be early on when um, there's a, there's a shootout between uh, the initial posse and the Comanches. And it took apparently one of the uh, people that they shot 
died a short while, like, after they ran away, mm-hmm. and they buried him in the desert. And they run across the corpse. And one guy's... Like, barely even buried. And one guy whose, like, family had been killed, uh, like, throws a rock on the corpse. And that's pretty fucked up already. Mm. And John Wayne says, why stop there? And he pulls out his gun, and he shoots the corpse in the eyes. And he specifically says, that may not mean anything to you, but to him, that means his soul can never find peace. his body, yeah. That's just desecrating a corpse... For the sake of it. For the sake of it. For the sake of spiritually damning someone for all eternity. And John Wayne believes that that means something. Mm. That's one of the first things we see Ethan really do. Like, do, do. Not just talk. Like, worst thing he's actually, like, accomplishes in the film. Holy shit. And then later on, we see a massacre of First Nation people. And again, we're trying to use the right terms here, and we, we if we apologize, we're using the wrong ones. We want to use the correct ones, but there's been some uh, di- some some discrepancy or disagreement on the correct terminology here, and we're just trying to follow what we've heard. But um, there's a massacre of First Nation people. It is just as horrifying, and in fact, the body count seems even higher than the massacre at the beginning of the film that started all of this. Mm. And yeah, I mean, if you're they're going off of the whole oh, they killed women and children, that's just as bad. White people did that too. I don't see John Wayne getting pissed about that. And the movie, I think, understands that that's fucked up. There's a part in the film where it's in the dead of winter and they need to shoot uh, a buffalo in order to eat. Makes sense. So they shoot a couple of buffalo. And then John Wayne succeeds shooting more and more and more. And Jeffrey Hunter says, you have to stop. We're running out of, like, it's unnecessary. You're killing them for no reason, and we're running out of bullets. And John Wayne's just like, I'm not letting any non-white people eat this winter. Mm. And you're like, holy shit, dude. His, his cruelty is is his only reason for existing. That's all he's got. And, like, yeah, he can be nice to a person. Mm. He can be nice in a microcosm, but his actual belief system, his actual lifestyle is built and around and based on hatred. And this is one of the reasons why I brought up, and again, I'm not, I don't, I'm not John Wayne's biographer. I don't know all the details, but I do know that there are nice stories about John Wayne. And there's also plenty of things John Wayne has openly said that were outwardly horrifying and tells you a lot about where he came from as a person. These things can coexist. It doesn't mean that he wasn't racist. And I think the searchers kind of operates the same way. And you can look on it as a treatise on John Wayne itself, maybe accidentally. Yeah. But where like, yeah, he's a complicated character, but he's fucking racist and there's no place for that. Yeah. And, and I think what I got from this time around watching it is that there's, there's, I don't think we're supposed to see him as a hero. I think we're only supposed to see a certain type of, like there's almost a Paul Thomas Anderson analysis Mm. of the John Wayne character going on here. Uh, that I think if if John Ford were perhaps a little bit more of a modern director would be bringing to it, yeah. Uh, where we're kind of looking at the very basis of the American ethos and finding an, just empty cruelty. Yeah, you look at someone like Daniel Plainview, and there will be blood, and yeah. you see, well, what what started American capitalism? Turns out, just greedy assholes who don't live for anything. Yeah, and I think this uh, is the sort of thing that John yeah. Ford had already p- depicted sort of unironically in some of his earlier westerns, mm-hmm. like Stagecoach starring John Wayne. So, and then I think so here he's just gotten, is, yeah, I think he's gotten bit. older, more mature as a filmmaker, and he's more interested in more complex characters. 
yeah. where he's just like, who would this person really be in a situation like this? Well, who would keep on this search now, unless they were mega racist? I, th- I think at the time we're supposed to see, oh, well, he's he's a hero, but he's complex. And I yeah. think a modern audience, we can't see him as a hero anymore. No. And I think that's maybe why I enjoyed it so much more, because I realized that he's the villain of the piece. There's, there's a there's, term there that is, we should there use more often. There's a bad guy they're, they're chasing after uh, yeah. named Scar, yeah. who's a First Nation character, but he's played by a German actor. So yeah. there's racist casting going on. It was the 1950s. Yeah. The, the whole industry was racist, the, the and that's su- what we're looking at. There. The supporting roles mm-hmm. uh, uh, were largely, if not entirely, played by actual First Nation people, is my understanding. But yeah, the main lead character slash villain... Mm. Uh, was yeah German a German actor German American yeah uh, whose name actually let's, let's give him at least let's give him at least some credit um, <laughs> okay. let's see here Scar was played by some guy Henry Brandon <laughs> Henry yeah Brandon, who was born Heinrich von Kleinbach so yeah <laughs> um fifties um but uh, where was it? Where, where were we going with this? You're going to bring up something here. I probably was. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got you kind of distracted me a little Sorry, bit. No, no, it's fine. But the other the other thing is, so we've got this incredibly. Oh, I was going to talk about um, one of the words we use a lot uh, when we talk about film is the antihero. Yeah. Um, where the idea is they're bad, but we're rooting for them anyway. Hmm. There's a term that I think we should use more often. I think it's the anti-villain. Hmm. John Wayne's a villain in this movie. Yeah. But he's put in a position by the nature of the plot, to be doing something that looks heroic. Yeah. And I think that's more the role John Wayne is playing here. He's definitely not a hero. And I don't even think he's an anti-hero because I don't support him. In fact, at the end, when he ultimately decides not to kill Lucy, it actually feels forced and contrived. I don't see where the change in him came from. Mm. Like, I really don't. Like, he just decided to not to for some reason, even though he, he wanted to and did very much so and try. If there were more interplay between he and Jeffrey Hunter, and Jeffrey Hunter like convinced him to be a little bit more decent, that would make sense. But it's it's a one-way street with those two. Uh, yeah. John Wayne is only feeding rancor to the Jeffrey Hunter character. Yeah. And Jeffrey Hunter is, is the one who's falling and becoming more corrupt. Yeah. There, yeah. It's... Uh... So I don't, I don't quite buy that. And that's actually my biggest flaw with the film, like narratively is I don't quite like, buy it actually that. Narratively makes sense for him to do the more despicable thing. Yeah. I get that you want him to, I just don't see the justification and maybe I missed something. Yeah. I understand he's supposed to be a complicated character, but when you have him be so monomaniacal, it's weird when he suddenly stops. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, beyond the, the the character that we're talking about here, and I would argue, well, we're, when we start to connect things to Star Wars, I honestly think, uh, in some respects, that the portrayal of Ethan is a little bit what George Lucas was going for in the portrayal of a young Anakin Skywalker, where he's clearly driven by hatred and malice and ignorance, but people are really willing to give him a pass because he was really, really cool, cool. in that war. Mm-hmm. Um and the the comparison I'm going to make is between uh, John Wayne and Darth Vader. Yeah, and exactly. Sort of their, Darth Vader. Their, their, their parallel, uh, the way the public perceive those two characters and how those things. I, I think it's fair to say that Star Wars takes a lot of influence from this movie, sort of visually in its use of widescreen photography. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the way that it portrays the movie, uh, the the planet Tatooine. Uh, well, this there, arid a, desert planet full of scum and villainy and there, giant couple, mountains. There's a couple different uh, natural vistas throughout Star Wars, but yeah. I know that one of the mandates of Star Wars was 
I'm not sure if there, actually, I don't know if this is a mandate or something just fans noticed, but that mm. there were like three varied locations in each film. Yeah. Like that, and that became sort of a pattern after a while. Like yeah. George Lucas started doing that deliberately by the time he yeah. got around to the prequel. Well, films. it makes it feel like you've really been on a journey yeah. if you've gone to at least three distinct locations mm-hmm. that look very different from each other. It's, it's the Searchers actually doesn't have that. Uh, John Ford loved to shoot in Monument Valley, so even though it's supposed to be going like from like Texas to Canada. Almost every scene looks like a shot in, in Monument Valley. There's one point where <laughs> yeah. it's there in the snow, but the rest of it looks like either a soundstage or Monument Valley, which is very funny. But um, Star Wars, I think, takes its narrative cues from the searchers in two distinct movies. Uh, first off, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Uh, Luke is living on the farm at the beginning of the searchers, mm-hmm. where he is the adopted child. He's Jeffrey Hunter uh, of uh, you know a, an easygoing farming family. Yeah. And then they are massacred. And I think what's interesting is that they are massacred by the Empire. But the Empire actually tries to make it look like it was the Tuscan Raiders who did it. So mm. I, I don't know if George Lucas was actually thinking this out loud or not, but I think it's interesting that he was evoking the sort of the, the racism of the era, but he was also eager to blame uh, the white colonialists responsible for it like those are the people who are actually fundamentally responsible for all of this and then you have uh uh, luke skywalker going out on a journey to rescue a kidnapped woman uh with an older war veteran except this older war veteran isn't motivated by racism Mm. the other big parallel comes in attack of the clones where we see that anakin skywalker who was actually uh, uh raised on tatooine as a slave and has escaped that uh, he comes back when his mother is kidnapped in an actual Tuscan Raider raid. And he actually becomes Ethan in this scene where he actually goes to the 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 camp, the uh, wherever you want to call it, wherever the Tuscan Raiders live, finds out he's too late to save his mom, and he kills everybody. Not just the people who actually did it, but the women and the children too. And much like I think a lot of the younger, you know, the, not the younger, the contemporary audiences of the searchers, there probably wasn't everyone wasn't necessarily saying it was horrible. Like Padme goes, "Oh no, oh we'll make out in an hour after I'm over yeah, and, it." And they, like, get, and they get married, yeah, like, shortly thereafter. I'm talking red fucking flags here. <laughs> Holy shit! But in the end, we realize that yeah, everyone shouldn't have fucking ignored that. Mm. That was the that was the that was symptomatic of a yeah. deep rooted. Evil. It's a deep-rooted evil in Ethan, and it's a deep-rooted evil in Anakin Skywalker. Um, American cinema has had a, I feel like, trying to get over their frustration with John Wayne as an archetype. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just an actor; he became a symbol. He was, yeah. you know, a symbol of masculinity. Yeah, specifically of like masculinity, the way movies sell masculinity, and uh, just in terms of Hollywood iconography, you'd see mm. big murals in you know on in on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and John Wayne would always be there in costume as one of his cowboy characters. One of my favorite comedic scenes ever is in the birdcage. Oh. <laughs> where uh, where uh, Nathan Lane has decides he needs to pretend to be a heterosexual in order to meet uh his son's uh, new parents who are staunchly conservative. Um and Robin Williams is trying to coach him on like how to get away with it and how to how to pass basically and uh, Nathan Lane can't really walk in such a way that doesn't indicate his sexuality. And Robin Williams says, I'm going to give you an image. It's a cliche, oh. but it's an image. 
John Wayne. <laughs> and Nathan Lane walks exactly like John Wayne, and it's ridiculous. And he sits down, and he says, no good. And Robin Williams says, no, it's perfect. I just didn't realize that's how John Wayne walked. <laughs> and it's true. We were oh. watching it now. And I was watching it with my wife, Michelle, and she was just like, he walks like every part of his body is surprised to have made it this far. Like, <laughs> just like, oh, interesting. Like okay, let's, let's try this next arm. Like, yeah. it looks like he never quite looks comfortable when he's walking. I don't know why. It's really funny. Uh, there have been some, this is apocryphal, but the, the story for a long time was uh, he, he actually had the runs. Oh, no, you're thinking of uh, uh, High Noon with uh, Gary Cooper. Oh, I, I heard that about John Wayne, actually. No, so I, I heard that about High Noon. Over. All right. Yeah, about High Noon. He had a, kind of an odd walk, and the, the idea was he had the hemorrhoids or the runs or something similar, so, yeah. and that explained it. But no, I think, just, I think dudes just used to walk like that for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but I, 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 we've, been, we've had to sort of come to peace with uh, and contend with uh, how this image of John Wayne has leaked into film history, even though... As a society, we've kind of outgrown films like The Searchers, yeah, or at least the the earlier films. I don't know if we've come to Wayne. peace with that. I think we're we're well. We've like I said, we've had to. It's something we've had to wrestle with a lot as we've. I just don't forward. think that's coming and, to peace. I think it's the opposite. But yeah, and I'm wondering if that's a very similar journey of the public and John Wayne and George Lucas with Darth Vader. How George mm. Lucas wrote Darth Vader to be a horrendous villain. Yeah, he commits a genocide in the first Star Wars movie as. A negotiation tactic. Oh, yeah. He, he thinks, Just for the hell of it. He thinks nothing of blowing up an entire planet. Yeah. And uh, he, he has you know, ripples throughout the universe, and yet, somehow... And but they, even, they even literally say, like, we're going to blow up this planet if you don't tell us where the rebels are. And she says, okay, fine, they're, they're in uh, Dantooine. And, and then they're like, okay, let's uh, blow up this planet. What are you talking about? Dantooine doesn't have enough people. We want to commit a bigger massacre <laughs> that's literally the justification for blowing up Alderaan they don't have to the only purpose it serves is it's got a bigger population than the planet we will also blow up we, we can <laughs> kill more people this way ah. and yeah he's he's uh I understand he's very scary and he's very imposing mm-hmm. and he makes sort of like a cool movie villain by the time we got to The Empire Strikes Back uh audiences have reacted so positively to him that they kind of expanded his role uh, they mm-hmm. they made him a little bit more intimately connected with the heroes, so now yeah. they kind of are humanizing oh. this guy a little bit, which is again a fine way to treat a villain. Sure, because we want to look at, at villainy and sort of see the humanity inside, because we want to uh, show that evil comes from a banal place. We are all capable of it, and we need to watch out for it. That's actually a very humane way to write a villain. But over the course, over the years, the fa- as the fans took over Star Wars, yeah. as they did, uh, this is irrefutable. Uh, they started to hold Darth Vader up as sort of an aspirational figure. They started to admire his power mm-hmm. more than they feared or or were scared by his villainy. Well, I think when you tell a whole trilogy about him growing up, you make him more sympathetic in some way, yeah, especially no. when you have a whole TV series about him being cool in a war. And I know they eventually talk about his downfall as well, but... A lot of that stuff didn't show up until, like, the this, most recent season. And this idea of him, like murdering the the emperor at the end of the return well, of the jedi a lot of people saying so, oh well now it's now it's a redemptive arc about so no. killing that one guy when the empire was already kind of falling well the empire the empire was falling oh. b he only did it to save the life of his own flesh and blood which i would argue is more a selfish act yeah. than a selfless one because okay maybe he'll die but he's preserving his bloodline hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure that part of him was like, oh, maybe Luke is right. Fine. Uh, killing one guy in no way 
under any reasonable, rational, sane system of justice is a fair trade for killing billions of people, massacring children by hand on multiple occasions. <laughs> more than once. <laughs> I think I think that you're I think you got a point here. I think the I was thinking more about the early stuff about Darth Vader, but I think the idea that Darth Vader is somehow redeemed by killing the Emperor mm. is very much parallel to the idea, false idea, I think, that Ethan is somehow redeemed just because he didn't kill Lucy. Yeah, he committed yeah. so many atrocious acts that we saw, let alone the ones we are only that are only alluded to. No, hmm. he he doesn't get redeemed here. He might show some complexity, and he might show the capacity for remorse or shame, or maybe even to admit that he's wrong. But I don't. That in no way does that make up for a lifetime of hatred and horror. Hmm. So I think you've, you've got an excellent point. Yeah, and. I think in making the prequels uh, and showing kind of the way Darth Vader started out as like a little kid who just wanted to race in car races, mm -hmm. just like George Lucas used to when he was in Modesto. Yeah. Uh, and turn into this fellow who became an easily duped warmonger who was just full of hate and vengeance and was taken away from his mom and ended up just committing all kinds of atrocious revenge killings and showing that... Uh, even though he might have started as a decent child, he was just kind of a, a bad egg for a long part, long portion of his life. The vast majority of his life, he yeah. was already very tainted. So as I, a person, I think yeah. maybe George Lucas was really trying to like. First of all, he was already stuck with this idea of Star of uh, Darth Vader being more an important cog in this universe yeah. than the first film led you to believe. Uh, but now he was trying to take Darth Vader's villainy back. The problem is those films are so badly made. Uh, the prequels. Episodes 1, 2, and 3 are so badly written that we don't get a sense of his true moral depravity. Mm -hmm. And he comes across as sort of a, a, a almost a sad, pathetic figure you know, rather I've, than a, an atrociously villainous one. I, I, this is something I think is... I think it's a bit of a fallacy that some people find themselves in when they speak about movies critically. Mm -hmm. And I know I have done it myself, and I try not to anymore, and... Uh, you know, we're all on a journey. Uh, but I think there's a big difference between figuring out what a movie is trying to do mm. or acknowledging what a movie is trying to do and exploring whether or not it did so well. Yeah. I have heard so many people who are very intelligent, who have a lot of respect for people like Ryan Johnson or Dave Filoni or just big fans of Star Wars in general, explain the plot of the prequels in such a way that they sound majestic and subversive and brilliant. Mm. But then you watch them and you realize they're just not conveyed very well. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, it's taking 20 years of living with the Phantom Menace and going through these weird, complicated, emotional backflips to come to terms with the fact that you don't like it. Mm -hmm. And maybe you do like it, and some people grew up with it, and they actually have genuine affection for it. And they've watched it enough that they're finally figuring out basic, basic plot shit. Yeah. Like, not, not even, like, these weird, complicated themes that have been lurking un under there this entire time, proving yeah. that it's brilliant. No, just basic things that are happening in the story yeah. are now finally being seen because it took that many rewatches to get through the shit of yeah. how badly written it And was. just get to the core of what it's really about and what the character's journey is about. and. Yeah, I've, I, there was a meme going along on Twitter a few months ago we talked about it here on the podcast where it was literally just the plot of the movies explained and people going, see, it's genius. And I'm like, no, this is proof that it's not. Yeah. This should have been – I understand subtext sometimes takes a couple of watches. Hmm. 
But this is the basic premise of the trilogy. This should be clearer. And I think it's fair to say that in something like The Searchers, uh, you can get lost in how effectively the old-fashioned adventure story is told, and you can perhaps miss just how subversive it's at least attempting to be, or at least touching upon. And I would actually argue that that may be one of the great downfalls of The Searchers, is A, I think the ending with Ethan's redemption is rushed and forced, not unlike Return of the Jedi. Um, but beyond that... If it is possible, let's say, let's say for a moment, let's hypothetically assume for a moment mm -hmm. that all of this commentary about Ethan's racism is intentional. Okay. That none of it's an accident, none of it's just like an idea for a character that ballooned and kind of became a subtextual theme. What if it was all intentional right away? That it is possible to walk away from the movie and not pick up on that at any age is to the detriment of the film. Mm -hmm. Because then you're running the risk of telling a story about how horrible racism is that doesn't adequately convey how horrible racism is. That's, that should be text on yeah. some level. Maybe the details can be subtext, it but should, the, should, the, 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 your premise should be clear, I think. It should be so obvious that, like, a privileged white kid could pick up on it. Well, I hope. Anyway, because, like, some people need that message. Yeah. Some people need to know, need to be hit on the head and told that racism is bad. There's a reason Green Book won Best Picture. I'm sorry to bring that up. Fortunately, well, that didn't seem to inspire Star Wars. We don't have to talk about it on this <laughs> podcast. Book ever again. Jesus. Um, but, uh, but yeah. But regardless, you know, there are elements of The Searchers that are still problematic and hard to watch and maybe even unintentional. But the absolute uh, uh, brilliance of the visual presentation, the really exceptional performances throughout. In particular, I think Vera Miles and Jeffrey Hunter. But it's both great. Yeah, it, it's written around John Wayne. He does good work here. Uh, fun facts, uh, one of the things Ethan says most often when people tell him stuff is, that'll be the day. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the inspiration for the Buddy Holly song. Was it really? Yeah, apparently they saw The Searchers and thought it was yeah. funny that he said that so much, and so they wrote a song called mm -hmm. That'll Be the Day, which is one of the biggest hits oh, the of in rock and roll. You know, another thing that mm -hmm. uh, The Searchers did that was uh, arguably a first, mm -hmm. or one of the firsts, or actually, I don't have like every movie's history in front of me, so I can't say for certain. Uh, but it was one of the first films to have a making of feature made for it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, they uh, they thought it was, they thought the production was neat. So they actually were making making of features like during production. Mm -hmm. So they actually, I think they aired it on TV. And uh, nowadays that's a, that's a common thing. And indeed the Star Wars universe has a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those sort of behind the scenes films have fact, inspired so, other people to get into the film industry. What, what was the, the, it was like, I think it was called From Empire to Jedi or From Star Wars to Jedi. I don't know. Uh, there was a, a rather famous making of documentary made around the time of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. It was all about the making of Star Wars. Yeah, was, exactly. Yeah, novelty at the time. Um, so, uh, so anyway, The Searchers had a big impact. A lot of filmmakers have said they were directly inspired by The Searchers, including George Lucas, including Steven Spielberg including Jean-Luc Godard, uh, I think Francois Truffaut, I think mm. also said that. Um, it's, uh, it's a significant film in film history, uh, and it inspires to this day uh, some, uh, well, deep conversation. So uh, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Episode Zero. We will be back next week with a film that post-dates the original Star Wars trilogy, but was integral to inspiring the prequels. 
a film that George Lucas said showed him that the technology was available to do what he wanted to do with the prequels. And that film is Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. It's it's um it's about mosquitoes yes. that drink some blood. Yep. And, and die. And, and they die. Yeah. And what happens to their corpses years later? What happens it's, to these mosquitoes? You won't believe this, your eyes. It's it's a movie very much about uh, it's a warning about what we happen when we desecrate the corpses of mosquitoes. That's true. I love you so much. <laughs> anyway, that's it for episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with Jurassic Park. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Sargent. Uh, we have uh, a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can hear a ton of exclusive content, including podcasts about movies that are not on Disney+, Plus but should be. Podcasts about every movie ever nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. Podcasts about every single episode of Star Trek in production order. A Firefly podcast, which we're on a bit of a break for, but we're going to get back to that soon. Uh, and uh, tons of other stuff as well. We've got polls. Uh, you can help decide on future episodes of a lot of our uh, uh, shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing. Thank you, especially thank you to everybody who has uh, donated to our Patreon to help keep these series going. And, uh, wait a minute, forgetting anything. Uh, no, that's all. Okay, then may the force be with you and stuff. Ah!